0: This is the Marketing Podcast Network.
1: With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on Logistics Insights at maersk.com slash insights.
0: You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On The Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them, go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking A Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and And the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome. To uncorking a story well hey now and welcome to another exciting episode of uncorking a story i'm your host mike carlin and i'm thrilled to have you join me on another exciting episode i want to remind you to please follow uncorking a story on all socials including instagram facebook youtube and twitter and you can find us at uncorking a story on all of those platforms and just a quick note on youtube that platform has been a great growth vehicle for the show especially since we've upped the video quality of our episodes it's also become a very fun way for me to interact with the audience so please subscribe to our youtube channel by searching for uncorking a story and hitting subscribe for you audio listeners out there please subscribe rate and review uncorking a story wherever you get your podcasts today i'm excited to share with you my conversation with writer and author robert norris who has a new book out called the good lord willing and the creek don't rise pentimento memories of mom and me which is his autobiography as well as a tribute to his late mother He's got a really interesting story about his life during the Vietnam War and how some of the decisions he made during that tumultuous period of time impacted the rest of his life. But that is his story to tell, and we'll let him tell that momentarily. I did want to reflect for a moment on how I met Robert, um, which is pretty different from the way I usually meet my guests. He cold-called me. You know, typically I book guests through their publicists and have no interaction with them before I interview them, but Robert went directly to me. He went directly to the source. He started off his letter to me. I say he cold called me. He he cold emailed me. And no one calls anymore. Uh, but he he started off his letter with a personal introduction, but then showed me that he did his homework by sharing observations, very specific observations he had from um, by listening to a few past episodes. And he complimented my interviewing style. And I will tell you this, flattery will get you everywhere. He then pitched his appearance, talked about his book and asked if I'd have him on. Um, so he, he went to the ask, but he did his homework first. And his story looked interesting enough to me. And I thought we'd have a great conversation. So I extended an in, uh, invite to him and we did have a great conversation, but um, it, it made me realize something though, um, that there's a bigger lesson here. Um, So, think about it, you know, for those of you who are, you know, have have finished your manuscripts and are querying agents, um, don't just pitch your manuscript. Do your homework. Show them why you would be a good fit on their roster of agents. Personalize that query letter. You know, don't send the same form letter to every single agent. Now, they're going to send you the same rejection letter. This is one thing I've learned about agents. Um, you know, they want they certainly want personalized queries and, and to see that you did your homework, but they don't they don't personalize the rejections. They all say the same thing. Every single rejection I've gotten from different agencies. And I'm not too proud to admit that I've gotten a few. They all say the same damn thing. But um, that's I guess that's the irony. That's the irony of, of what it is we're doing here. Right. Um, so my advice to you is personalize that query. And the same thing works, by the way. Well, in business you know wh- if you're a salesperson hunting for new clients um you show that you did your homework on that client if you are interviewing for a job learn something about the person you're interviewing with and you know kind of find a way to to sneak that into conversation by showing another person that you've done some homework on them kind of shows that you care and that you were willing to do that means that you might be willing to work very hard for them so Anyway, that is my lesson of today. My goal is always to help you become better writers and authors. And uh, there it is. Do your homework. All right, now let's uncork Robert's story. Robert W. Norris was born and raised in Humboldt County, California, where he played basketball in high school and junior college. In 1969, he entered the Air Force, but subsequently became a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War and as a result, served time in a military prison for refusing to fight. He joined me on Uncorking a Story to discuss his latest book, The Good Lord Willing of the Creek Don't Rise, Pentimento Memories of Mom and Me, an autobiography and tribute to his mother. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Robert.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
0: I'm happy to have you here, Robert. I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin?
1: Well, actually, I think there are, three separate experiences that uh, more or less propelled me along this path. But uh, initially, when I was about four or five years old, uh, you know, growing up uh, near the redwoods, uh, or actually on the edge of a redwood forest in Northern California, my mother and her mother, my grandmother, uh, just infused me with a, a love of story and storytelling. They they had the gift of gab, and <laughs> they were great at uh, you know, exaggeration, and uh, they they had a wonderful sense of humor. And uh, I remember my grandmother telling me stories of their uh, migration across the United States during the early parts of the Depression, c- c- kind of like the Jode family and the Grapes of Wrath, only their path took them from uh, North uh, Dakota uh, to, uh, Oregon and Washington, where they eventually settled on the Columbia river in a small town there. And, um, uh, my mother, uh, told me a lot of stories about growing up there. And, uh, you know, I just loved the way they told their stories. We were, my brother and I were completely captivated by their stories and, uh, they would, uh, you know, every time they tell the same story, they might add a detail that they hadn't before or or stress a certain point. And so we were, uh, you know, our, our jaws were dropped on the floor, you know, just wondering about these uh, adventures. And then, of course, uh, always for Christmas or birthdays, uh, I was given books to read, you know, adventure stories and uh, Gulliver's Travels and Mark Twain's books and so on. And so I always loved stories. I was always reading from the time I was a little kid. Then if we fast forward uh, to 1970, when I was 19 years old and I had been facing the draft, of course, when I was 18 and the Vietnam War was was raging, I ended up uh, joining the military as a very naive young man, uh, believing what the recruiter told me, that I would be able to play basketball all day long and have adventures around the world and never have to worry about the war. And, of course, uh, I bought it all hook, line, and sinker. And as it turned out, I became a guard for B-52 bombers and was uh, you know, had to go through all the different war training and learning how to use a, a variety of different weapons. And so I was heavily influenced by the music of the time, and I got involved with uh, a couple of other uh, airmen, uh, GIs on the same base, who were actively involved in the Uh, GI movement against the war, and they were producing an uh, off-base underground newspaper. And so uh, I was heavily influenced by the time I spent with them and the discussions we had with them and talking to a lot of soldiers who were coming back from Vietnam. And uh, Kent State happened in May uh, 1970. That was probably the final straw for me. And my order to uh, go to war came not too long after that. And so... I took about a month off, we were allowed uh, 30 days leave before having to report to another base in Texas for more war training before being shipped out to Southeast Asia. And I I just knew that uh, I couldn't participate in this any longer. And so I, I basically had three choices. One was either go to Canada and probably never be able to come back to the States again. Another was to follow the order and, and go to Vietnam. And then the third was uh, to refuse the order and face probably uh, a court martial and, and uh, potentially five years in prison. And I chose the third one. Well, at my, uh, well, And my commanding officer called me into his office and gave me one final chance. He gave me the final order. And when it boiled down to uh, in my court martial, was that uh, the way I responded to his order was that I never used the word no. I, I refused in a sort of alternative way, I suppose you could say. I kept repeating the sentence, I don't feel I'm mentally or physically capable of killing another human being. And so about a month later, I had my court martial and I was charged with the military crime of willful disobedience to a direct lawful order. And after a day's deliberation, I was found not guilty of the original charge, but guilty of a lesser military crime of negligent disobedience to a direct lawful order, and was sentenced to six months. So that one sentence basically saved four and a half years of my life, and so that was my introduction at the age of 19 to the, the power of language. And so sure. I served. I want to go back to
0: that yeah. yeah I want to go back to that point in your life though um how what was that commanding officer's reaction to you I mean did, did he have any kind of sympathy or empathy for you or did, did those characteristics not exist in, in the military at that time
1: Well a few were there I mean there was a pretty active uh, anti-war movement from within the military at the time but it was more or less underground and it didn't really include I think a whole lot of uh, officers, mostly among, you know, the, uh, the troops. But uh, I was very fortunate that the lawyer I had was a military lawyer and he had spent uh, eight years of schooling getting his degree and rather than go to Canada and throw away his whole career, he decided that he could do better work from within the military. And so I was his first really big case. And he worked really, really hard on that uh, case, and and he's the one that counseled me to don't use the word no, uh, don't do a a direct refusal of going to orders. And there were uh, legal ramifications that I didn't understand at the time, but he was able to uh, twist all the testimony and deliberation, you know, from both sides, the prosecution and and the defense. And it worked in my favor. So yeah, I I came across a few people who were anti-war at the time, although my commanding officer, he definitely wanted to make an example of me. (laughs) Yeah.
0: What, what was that six months like when you were in, was it like a military prison or?
1: Yeah. The first month I was put into a, a local base. I was on, uh, a base called Beale Air Base in near Sacramento, California. And my first month was spent in a very small jail there. And I describe a lot of those experiences in, in the book itself. And it wasn't so bad, really. There was a regular routine where we would get up in the mornings at 4.30 and have to clean ourselves and uh, clean the jail. Then we would be taken to the chow hall with an armed guard. and. Then during the day, we'd be sent out uh, to different parts on the base to do labor work and and cleaning and, uh, you know, nothing really too uh, severe. And then we'd have to be back in the jail by 5 o'clock that night. We'd be taken to the chow hall again. And the days were pretty much uh, that kind of routine, just a lot of labor, a lot of sitting around. On Sundays, we would have a few hours of free time, and if— If we were lucky, we'd have a visitor or two. I had a couple of strange adventures uh, that, uh, again, (laughs) are included in detail in in the book itself. But after about a month there, I was sent to this rehabilitation program that the Air Force had in the hopes that they would be able to uh, get back all the time and money that they'd spent in training these, uh, you know, quote-unquote, criminals who, if their crime was, Nonviolent, you know, uh, they seem to have potential for maybe being retrained in a different career field and sent back to the Air Force to serve out their good time. But I was uh, pretty adamant at the time. I didn't care if I got a bad discharge or not. And so I didn't really follow their program. I I was booted out of the Air Force. Uh, That was in Denver, Colorado. And uh, it was more or less like uh, boot camp, you know we were in these, not in individual cells, but we were in these open bay barracks and there were maybe a hundred soldiers, uh, criminals, I guess, (laughs) you know, in the barracks themselves. And so we would get up at four 30 in the morning, there'd be a mad rush uh, to get cleaned and shaved and out on the uh, outside on the parade. I don't know, grounds, I guess you could call them ready to be marched to breakfast. And then we would have to go through a lot of, hmm, I thought of them as kind of brainwashing classes, but uh, that was part of their rehabilitation program was to reinstill the idea of patriotism and and the dangers of communism and and this kind of thing and and the righteousness of the the war. And and most of the the inmates, you know, kind of just laughed most of that stuff off, although most of them played the game and, and returned after their bad time was up uh to the service in in a different career field but i i was uh let go i was allowed to get out of the military after my 6 months were up and returned to society after that and uh
0: and w- did that have a, a lasting impact on your life after that i mean were were there things that you couldn't do you know oh, professionally sure, sure. career wise or socially yeah
1: yeah, I was given what was called a, an undesirable discharge, which was not as bad as uh, what they called a bad conduct discharge or a, a dishonorable discharge. You know, those are reserved for pretty severe, you know, treasonous type of crimes and in, in, uh, well, something along the lines. If you had committed some kind of robbery or serious crime, then... Uh, you know, that that would have a, a much worse effect on, on your life than, than an undesirable discharge. But yeah, whenever I would go and uh, apply for a job, most of the jobs I applied for were labor-type jobs uh, in mills and in uh, factories. Uh, on the application form, you always had to sign, you know, a, a section where, uh, or answer the question, have you ever been in the military service, and if so, Uh, how long and what kind of discharge did you get? And I always had to put down undesirable discharge. And as soon as the interviewer saw that, they would get into a pretty serious debate about the rights and wrongs of the Vietnam War. And ironically, I I was never refused a job because of that. In many cases, we got into heated discussions. But uh, at the end of it, they would more often than not hire me because although they disagreed with my political opinions, you know, they liked my spunk. <laughs> and so I, I ended up getting a job because of it in a couple of cases. But, yeah, uh, psychologically, I suppose I'd, uh, I don't know, been influenced a lot by the, the, the education, re-education programs that they had in in the the jail itself where they pounded into your head that, you know, if if you have a bad discharge, you'll never be able to have a successful life on the outside. And so I had a, a little bit of uh, inferiority complex, and, and I was too young and, and edu- uneducated to really be able to, uh, I don't know, articulate uh, deeply how I thought and felt at the time. And so, yeah, I, I faced a lot of criticism. Uh, particularly from the older generation, my father's generation. My father was a World War II hero who had flown with the invasion of Normandy, and so my actions weren't really well received (laughs) from his uh, cohorts. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I I tried to go back to school uh, for a while, but by that time, and play basketball, but by that time, uh, my experiences uh, had you know, taking me along a different course, I I felt completely not really alienated, but just uh, different from the younger kids who were going to school. I was 20, 21 at that time, and most of them were 18. And so uh, I I dropped out of school. And eventually, like a lot of young hippies of that time, I went on a kind of search for identity, you know, and I hitchhiked across the States uh, bummed around Europe for a few months, and actually, this is the third part that really played a large uh role in you know getting me to think about uh, riding and that was during my uh, travels in Europe, I uh, constantly came across a lot of young Europeans who were basically doing the same thing, backpacking around and camping out and gathering in groups in the evenings and discussing things that were going on in the world and there were a lot of uh, Poets and musicians and, and uh, artists, and they all seemed to have uh, really fulfilling lives, and uh, they all spoke about three or four languages. And I felt so uh, envious because I could barely speak my own native language. <laughs> and so, uh, under their influence, and, and they, uh, you know, sort of uh, helped me. I don't know, map out a kind of uh, itinerary to follow and where should I go, what should I do? I ended up going to a lot of the the major European cities and going to some of the really great uh, museums where I saw all the great works of art that, uh, you know, that played a big influence on me. And, and so when I finally got back to the States, I now had a purpose. I I wanted to express myself, too. I wanted to study a foreign language. I wanted to live in a foreign country. And and I I started writing at that time about all the experiences that I'd had. And uh, it just kind of took off from there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, what can you share with us about The Good Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise?
1: Well, my mother died a couple of years ago, uh, just a few days short of her 95th birthday. And she had had a, a really uh, strong influence on me, and uh, in a sense, you know, once I, I grew up, uh, she was more than just my mother. She was my best friend for most of my life. And, and of all the people who, who criticized me and and sort of uh, you know put me down for what I'd done uh, in refusing to fight in, in the war, she was the one who was always there supporting me, and uh, she was. Quite a strong woman, an independent woman, uh, who had a quite an adventurous life herself. And so uh when she passed away, I was left with all all these uh emails and, and correspondence, you know, back when we were writing real letters back and forth with the postage stamps and everything. And I'd always sent her letters from every place I'd gone in all my adventures and journeys around the world. And Uh, She was always excited to hear the stories of those adventures, and uh, she had quite an interesting life herself. And so I I wanted to kind of preserve her spirit, so to speak, and uh, I uh, used a lot of that material. A lot of my earlier books had been, you know, quite strongly uh, autobiographical, so I had a lot of material from my own, writing, earlier writing and experiences that I could tweak and and put together. And I thought, well, let's combine both of these into one story. And so uh, I'm 72 now, and I thought, well, maybe this is the last book that I'll write. I might as well get it all down there. And and as I was writing, I I understood that uh, her life was even more interesting than my own. And so the first half of the book is really a lot of her family stories, and then uh, my uh, early years of growing up the the air force and anti-war experiences and then the the journeys abroad i also took another journey in 1977 where i started in paris you know heavily under the influence of all the expatriate writers of the 1930s like hemingway and henry miller and trying to follow their footsteps and I ended up meeting an Iranian and an Afghan while I was in Paris and and went back to their countries with them. So I went through Iran and Afghanistan. This is before the Iranian uh, Islamic Revolution there. Uh, India at the end. And so, you know, there was a lot of material to write about. And that was all book one. And then part two, I've now been in Japan for 40 years, if you can believe it. (laughs) Uh, book two is basically my expatriate experiences in Japan, where I started at the bottom and, and uh, was teaching in conversation schools, in many cases illegally on a tourist visa, but eventually met my wife, got married, uh, found uh, a sponsor for my visa. Through correspondence uh, course, I was able to get a bachelor's and a master's degree and eventually uh, found a job at a university and uh, taught there for about 25 years ended up as the dean of students there for a couple of years and retired as a professor emeritus and now have a little pension and uh very happy here and so book two was you know the the japanese experiences
0: you mentioned you know your mother had some experiences what what were uh some of her experiences that uh if any that you could share
1: to, to oh, learn, oh, yeah. what, what the appetite for for potential readers okay uh, well she got married very young and uh, she came of course from a very uh, tight knit family large family and uh, uh, you know she was always working in the 19 early 1940s in, in her high school years and, and always independent always contributing to her her family uh i don't know what you would call it little hidden bank <laughs> piggy bank you know to help help the family survive uh but uh yeah her first marriage didn't really work out, and uh she ended up uh, divorcing and this was in the nineteen fifties late nineteen fifties, and at that time she was a Catholic and uh yeah, Definitely
0: a scandalous move in the fifties. Um, yeah. yeah. My, my, my grandparents Catholic, um, were divorced in the late thirties. Um, Ooh. and, uh, and then my grandmother had the nerve to remarry. So that yeah. was a, uh,
1: <laughs> well, same I, I know
0: what you're talking about when it comes to scandal. So,
1: yeah, well, she got married again and, uh, she basically got booted out of the Catholic church, excommunicated and. uh, That had a pretty profound uh, emotional uh, impact on her. But uh, she had always worked part-time, but, uh, you know, again, in the 1950s and even into the early 1960s, it was very difficult for a woman to be financially independent. And uh, the jobs, the types of jobs that they could work were pretty limited. But anyway, um, she, in her 40s, uh, was bound and determined to get a a private pilot's license and with her part-time jobs working in flower shops and this and that she was able to pay for her own flight lessons she got a private pilot's license and eventually she got a part-time job flying for two summers uh, for the forestry service in the lake tahoe area as a fire spotter and uh yeah she that was pretty amazing uh she took me up in the airplane a couple of times and you know that that was a a, a special bonding experience in her early 50s uh she, you know after her second husband ended up uh, he had a, a a bad gambling habit and ended up uh, with $1000 in debt and so she ended up paying back all those Uh, debts uh, just through her own work and she started taking night classes to learn or to gain a qualification to become a legal secretary and she started working as a legal secretary in her 50s and continued until she was about 78 and uh, had a nice little pension for herself Uh, she came to japan i think eight different times she started uh, learning japanese in her 60s and so When she would come here and visit uh, while I was working, she'd be out on the streets, you know, having adventures and trying to communicate with uh, the local people. And then she would write in her journal everything that had happened. She published uh, some poetry. Uh, She was musically inclined. She played the organ, actually, she played the organ for the Catholic Church for uh, maybe eight years before she was excommunicated uh, on the Sunday sermons. And then we took uh, a trip together when she was about 77. Uh, Her father was Irish, and so he had always wanted to go back to Ireland, but he never could, just never had the the money or the time. And he he died when he was probably around 60 or so. But she also had that same dream, and so we were able to actualize that dream. And we took a a three-week journey to Ireland uh, around 2003, I think it was. And we ended up meeting some uh, distant cousins and finding some uh, uh, graves from some distant relatives and, and that was a, a wonderful magical time for her and so she was quite adventurous quite strong independent yeah wonderful woman
0: yeah it's sort of put can put thought into action that's pretty amazing i'm i'm curious so you mentioned she she you know learned how to fly how, how much did her becoming a pilot Influence your choosing to join the Air Force when it came time for you to to join the military service during the um, the draft era.
1: None, none at all. That my my choice okay. of, of uh, choosing the Air Force was basically, you know, facing the draft. The immediate worry was being drafted and sent uh, directly to the front lines in in Vietnam, and so. Uh, what seemed to be a viable alternative at the time was either joining the navy or the air force and, and you know, that was a four year commitment, but the odds of being sent directly to the front lines in Vietnam were somewhat reduced compared to being in the army or the marines and and it was really my gullibility and my naivety that led me into the air force when the recruiter said i'd be able to play basketball i said where's the contract where do i sign you know (laughs) that was the main reason looking back on it now i can't believe how foolish i was but you know you make decisions and you have to live with them you know (laughs)
0: Well, I always say, you know, you, you should never make big decisions about your life when you're 17 or 18 years old. <laughs> you know, it's a, uh, yeah. you know, it's a, uh, it, you know, words, words of advice, kids, don't make big decisions about your life when you're 18.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. you know, I always like to wrap up with um with uh, some pop culture questions, but we can go back in time here because uh, I mentioned you mentioned how music was a big part of your life and how music influenced your life back in the 70s what what were you into who were you listening to back in those days
1: uh, bob dylan of course and uh mm, the doors i love the doors uh i love their lyrics uh, you know a song comes to my mind that's followed me all through my life you know people are strange <laughs> that was one of the the songs that i really loved uh, uh probably the most influential group uh, on me at that time was Crosby, Stills and Nash, and uh, the timing was perfect. I mean, they had all played in different groups before they joined together, sure. and, and later with Neil Young. But uh, they their first uh, live appearance was at Woodstock, and actually, I was in the Air Force, and I saw the the documentary Woodstock at an Air Force theater, and. Uh, They were they just harmonized so beautifully, and then later they were very politically uh, oriented as well. They, uh, following Kent State, you know, they put out uh, a song called "Ohio," and uh, sure, you know, that had major influence on the whole uh, nation. And uh, earlier than that, uh, songs like uh, "Wooden Ships" uh, talks about. you know, the young people leaving the United States, uh, you know, just in frustration at, uh, over the war and uh, almost cut my hair. I had a, you know, once I got out of the Air Force, I was completely captivated by the counterculture and my hair was down to my shoulders and I had a big scraggly beard. And you know, I have to admit that I experimented with everything that everybody else was experimenting with. <laughs> and, so hey, you know, uh, a lot
0: of that stuff is uh, coming back, but for therapeutic purposes now.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I've kept uh, uh, abreast with that in the news, and uh, yeah, that's nice to know. But you know, these days it seems that uh, the pot that they're growing is you know many, many times stronger than, than what we were smoking <laughs> back in nineteen sixty nine or so.
0: I've I've heard I've heard the rumors. That's yeah. um, that's what I can share about that. But yeah. even with psychedelics, with um, LSD and you know um, mushrooms, they're they're actually using them in you know treatments for PTSD.
1: Yeah, um, microdosing. You know, under
0: yeah. and very in microdosing and controlled settings. But still, it's like they're finding these you know mind altering substances might have some therapeutic value.
1: Yeah, um, I, I hope so. Uh, I I can admit to one thing. Um, while I was in that uh, military prison back in Denver, there were a lot of guys who got out of the program who had uh, passed beyond their uh, their what would you call it expiration date. You know, for for the you know they'd served their time, but the Air Force hadn't really decided on what to do with them, whether to send them back to the Air Force or, or kick them out uh, with some kind of discharge, and so they were not uh, restricted to the base. They could go into downtown Denver uh, on the weekends and and whatnot, you know, to the bars or whatever they were doing. And there were a lot of hippies in Denver at that time. And so some of these guys would actually come back onto the base with a few goodies that they would pass around to some of the other (laughs) inmates. And I had my first acid experience while I was in. In prison, and it had a, a really profound effect on me. I didn't freak out or anything. It just sort of brought to uh, the fore how insane the whole situation was. I it it brought back my sense of humor, and I remember just having a big big grin on my face the whole time, and then going outside and seeing the most uh, beautiful sunrise or sunset. I, I should say that I'd seen in my life, and in, in uh, it was a very, very positive experience and it turned my attitude around and and I felt that uh, everything was as it was supposed to be and uh, it has surprising, you know, positive effect on me. Yeah. So that's that's, that's wrap, Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I was
0: going to say as we, as we wrap up here, uh, I imagine there might be some people listening who want to know where they could buy the book or connect with you. Do you have any uh, advice for them on, on how to do either of those things?
1: Oh, it's uh, everywhere. Of course, Amazon, but uh, any of the online uh, bookstores. Uh, if you go to like a local independent uh, bookstore, if, if you give them the uh, the title or, or the author's name or the ISBN number, then it, it can be easily ordered from Ingham Sparks, which is, you know, the biggest uh, distributor of books in the world. Uh, uh, I would recommend going to bookshop.org if you want to support, you know, local independent bookstores rather than the, the corporate titans. You know, there's a lot of people who are sort of anti Amazon <laughs> around the world these days. So it's available just about any place that you want. You can find it in both uh, paperback and in uh, electronic form, ebook uh, form, or, or just go to my homepage, which is robertwnorris.com and the information is there as well.
0: Now, Robert, do you do any, any kind of social media? Can we share any handles with people or are you uh, are you off of the mm. socials as the kids say?
1: Not too much. I, I have a, a Facebook page but it's uh, not very well developed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, my, my website is, is, is good enough. On the website you can find links to uh you know uh reviews and and interviews like this one and so from my point of view i i think that's enough i don't need to plaster my face all over the place you know <laughs> might get into more trouble you don't need
0: to, you don't need to share what you're having for dinner with everybody or or take pictures of uh no <laughs>
1: no know. those are top secret for, um, for just my wife and me <laughs>
0: There you go. Well, that's you know they got to keep something left to the imagination. But I will be sure to put the links to bookshop.org as well as to your website uh, you. in our show notes, so so people can easily find um, your your book and your website. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for coming to uncorking a story and letting me uncork yours.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a good time. Yeah, take care.